Wow, nothing gets my heart racing quite like the fairy tale told by George Lucas decades ago. Star Wars is uh, one of my all-time favorites. In fact, it was um, it captured my imagination as a kid. I remember one of the first movies that I saw in a movie theater was Empire Strikes Back. Uh, I was even one of those misguided college students in the 90s who paid to go back to the movie theater and watch the original trilogy of movies all over again. I love the story. I've told it to my kids. They're, they're fans as well. There's just something incredible and fascinating about this character of, of Anakin Skywalker who has so much potential and so much power, and yet he falls into so much darkness. Here he is as a young man following the order of the Jedi, and then he listens to a shrewd Sith Lord named Emperor Palpatine, and he finds himself going to what the story calls the dark side of the Force. Now, I've done a lot of research in this story, and according to uh, Wikipedia, which is a real thing, by the way, it describes it this way. It says, unlike the light side of the force, the users of the dark force drew power from raw emotions, passionate emotions like fear, hatred, greed, desire, and anger. I think Yoda said it best to Anakin, and I don't really have a good Yoda voice, so I'm not even going to try that. But, but Yoda said, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. Or, or later he would say it this way to Anakin's son, Luke Skywalker. He says, if you uh, once start down the dark path, forever it will dominate your destiny, consume you it will. So in the story, the way of the light side is a way of creation and life. The way of the dark side is a way of destruction and death. Anakin succumbed to that dark side, became Darth Vader, no longer a Jedi. He became a twisted perversion of his former self. How do you get to a place like that? How does someone who has so much power and so much potential for life-giving and creation and all of these things... How do they get a place of such selfishness and anger and fear and darkness? Well, even if you're not a fan of the Star Wars series or know much about the story, I'm guessing you've heard this story before. In fact, I've heard this story told in a much greater significant way. It's the story of the scriptures. And today we're continuing in our series entitled Once Upon a Time, where we're looking at this fantastic story in Genesis chapter 1 uh, all the way to chapter 3, this beginning of our story in the first few pages of our Bible. And, and this morning, as we begin together in the, the season of the church called Lent, as we prepare for Easter in the next 40 so or so days, I want to look at this image of Genesis chapter 3 and humanity's journey into sin, into the dark side, if you will, and really how that defaces our intended identity together. So if you've got a Bible, let me invite you to open up right where you are to Genesis chapter 3 this morning. And we'll start in verse 1. Now, as you're doing that, uh, much of the uh, Jedi stories um, uh, that we know about, that the movies picked up, there are other stories that have been written about that uh, far before even where the movies picked up. And in one of those, there was a Jedi master who outlined how she thought someone could fall into the dark side. She called it the four stages of the dark side. And honestly, it's almost like she stole her categories right from this Genesis story. So let me show you what I mean. Stage one of a journey to the dark side is what's called temptation. 
the Jedi master named Tolaris Shim, believed that a Jedi was in tune with the Force, and they could use the Force however they wanted, this sort of magical power. And yet, because of that, situations would arise that would tempt them to use their power selfishly. Boy, that sounds vaguely familiar to a story I'm used to in Genesis chapter 3. With great power comes great temptation. Adam and Eve, here we are in this story. They were created. They were gifted. They were given this amazing task. They had life-giving relationships with God and with each other and with creation. All of these things coming together. Incredible potential. But with their ability to eat from any tree in the garden came the temptation to eat from the wrong one. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Let's look at that together. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty, in Hebrew, more arum is the word, than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, arum or crafty isn't necessarily bad. In the book of Proverbs, it's used as a mark for the wise. It means to be, to be shrewd or uh, crafty. Strategic is the idea. So in this garden, human beings, they are in their infancy. They, are, they don't have a lot of experience yet in life. They are blissfully naive. In chapter 2 of Genesis, they are called, in Hebrew, the arumim. They are called the naked ones. So here you have this serpent who is arum. On the other side, he is experienced. He's knowledgeable. He knows what's what. He's cunning. They're childlike. He said to the woman, did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden? Good question. Is that what God really said? Well, we can just jump back, if you've got your Bible open, to chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, and see what God said. Uh, there he says to, uh, to Adam, to the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, which is different from what the serpent says when he says, God said, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. The serpent has shifted the word from free to not. He has taken uh, grace with boundaries and has turned it into a command without joy. Think about that first word of God in the story of Genesis 2. His first words were words of life and words of grace and words of freedom. He says to them, eat from the trees, even the life tree. Keep eating. The Hebrew is emphatic. Eat, eat. Eat, eat. Some of us have taken that command a little bit too far, maybe, but that was God's original command to his people. It wasn't about a rule. It was about his grace in the beginning. Any tree is available except for one. And even that one, notice God's command was not, listen, avoid the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if you obey, then you'll get the tree of life. No, he didn't say that either. He says, all of these are yours. So it wasn't about a reward for doing good in the garden. It was about a gift freely given. But he did say, in warning, if you do eat of this tree, you will lose what is already yours and bad things will happen. This snake twists all of that around, but that's the point of temptation. It twists truth. And I wonder, have you heard its voice lately? Have you heard the voice in your own mind of, of the thinking that somehow the, the way things God portrays them, God's somehow holding back from me, that, that God, you know, how could this be bad? Is God just a killjoy and doesn't want me to have any fun in life? That's this voice. And the woman in verse 2 enters into this temptation. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. 
Now again, is that accurate? Look back at Genesis 2. Notice that Eve adds to God's prohibition. She talks about not touching the tree, adding to what God said. He didn't say anything about that. And also, look at how she talks about this tree. Instead of saying the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she talks about the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. She is highlighting the pleasant aspects of the tree, talking about its fruit, talking about its centrality. She's engaging in the temptation. And that's the process of temptation. It twists our thinking. And I wonder if you've heard its voice lately. Have you entertained its dialogue, tried to reason away what God has said? Then in verse 4, the snake uses outright denial. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, God did mention in that original instruction something about death, but I want you to look back. It was not the main point. It was not a threat. God did not say, if you eat this fruit, I will kill you. He said, you will die. It's the result. You will open the door for what Paul in the New Testament would call would call the powers of sin and the, and the powers of death, and, and they will come into this good place, and they are not good masters. They are like this guy, Emperor Palpatine. But this snake takes that warning, and he turns it into a threat. Uh, scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it this way. He says, the givenness of God's rule is no longer the boundary of a safe place. God is now a barrier to be circumvented. That's the trouble with these trees. The, the tree of knowing good and evil sounds innocent enough. In fact, that phrase knowing good and evil is used three or four times in the Old Testament, um, always about children who are morally immature and who just don't have a lot of experience in life. These humans are in that kind of state, that kind of infancy state. Think about a, a two- or a three-year-old child, you know. They haven't experienced enough to determine what's helpful and what's harmful. They don't know enough that, you know, putting your hand on a hot stove is a bad thing. So they need to be sheltered by their father, by their mother, by their caregiver until they do receive that wisdom. That's what these humans need. But to take from this tree, this forbidden tree, is, is saying to God, I'm not waiting for you to teach me, God. I can decide for myself. And doesn't that line of thinking even sound like a three-year-old pulling its hand from its mother's grasp and running into traffic because he's a big boy and can do it on his own? <laughs> can he? Can we? You know, I, I think about this story, and there's so much connection with human experience. For every good gift God has provided for me in my life, I have figured out a million ways to ruin it by deciding for myself what is good and what is evil outside of God's direction. The phrase that just keeps coming back in the midst of temptation is this one, I know better. And that is the problem of temptation. It twists your view of God. God is no longer this gracious, life-giving, beautiful father. Instead, he becomes this stodgy killjoy who's holding something back. Have you heard that voice lately in your own life? Has that picture of God been painted for you? Maybe for you it 
sounds like, boy, sure would be nice to have a few extra dollars in these economic times. You know what? I could, I, I could just sort of fudge on my taxes this tax season, or I, I could just I could take this insurance claim. I could sort of over-evaluate this, and, you know, do, doesn't God want me to be happy? Doesn't God want to, you know, fix this financial tension I'm feeling? Surely he does. Surely he does. I know what I'll do. Or maybe for you it's, wow, Sandra at work is, she is beautiful and she is smart and she gets me. She gets me. My wife, she doesn't get me. She's never really gotten me before, but Sandra does. Surely there's nothing wrong with me spending time with her or or giving into this love that we feel. God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? I know what I'll do. Be wary of silliness from a snake. It's the path to the dark side. Instead, let me offer a a couple of lessons from the dark side here in Genesis 3. Uh, First of all, never talk to snakes alone. Invite God into your temptation. You know, when you're tempted, ask God, help me make sense of this. Invite him into the the temptation itself. I know that seems counterintuitive, but that's the problem in this story. All of a sudden, in Genesis 3, God is treated as a third person. There is not speech to God or with God. There is speech about God. God is objectified. The serpent is the first in the Bible, but not the last, who trades obedience for knowledge. Don't do that especially for those of you who've been Christians for a long time. It's so easy to be tempted to, to, have, to know lots of things about God and to trade your obedience and your trust in God for that knowledge. Don't push God aside in that critical moment of temptation. Invite him to show you the truth. That's one lesson. And the second is to never accept a lesser picture of God. When you're tempted and you find yourself being tempted by so many different things and anxieties and worries, Think about who you worship. Think about this God. And if this God in your mind is this stodgy, stingy, hard-nosed God, don't buy it. Reconnect with the picture of the biblical God in the face of Jesus. Well, stage one. And the journey to the dark side is about temptation. Stage two is what is called imperilment. Imperilment. Again, the Jedi master of old Uh, Jedi Master Shim said, a hasty Jedi may grow to believe that there could be a shortcut to more power and more enlightenment if they went to the path of the dark side. And so you see Anakin Skywalker, for instance, who his mother is kidnapped, and so he decides to go rescue her, which is a good thing, but in order to have the, the sort of power he needs to rescue her, he leans into the dark side, into his hate, into his anger, and then once he is put, uh, hooked, he is unable to pull away. And while he grows powerful on the outside, inwardly, he's being eaten away. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? From the fiction of Anakin to the folly of Adam and Eve. Look at verse 6 now of Genesis 3. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Okay, pop quiz for just a second. Sometimes in Sunday school, we kind of grab an image of this story and it sticks with us our whole life. Pop quiz. Who ate the forbidden fruit? Who listened to the serpent? Eve and Adam. 
who was with her. They both took a shortcut to wisdom by eating of this forbidden fruit. And they had plenty of good reasons for it. You heard the rationalization right here. It was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. Those are good things, but it was the wrong way to get those good things. They thought they were doing something good, just a quicker way to being like God. And isn't that what God called them to be, to be in the image of God, to be like God? And isn't that what God is calling us to be, to be like God? So what's the problem with the shortcut? Oh, I don't know about you. I love shortcuts. Americans, we love shortcuts. Just take this pill and you can lose weight now. You don't have to do all the hard work. Shortcut. Or, I just saw this in this week, my favorite, just wear these blue tinted glasses. And the blue tinting will make the food look less appealing to your brain, and so you won't eat it. Shortcut. I don't know. I tend to think even if I saw a blue Twinkie, I'd probably still eat it. But that's, that's just me. Or, you know, builders, let's take a shortcut in this building. For instance, hey, I see this water spigot is right there, but instead of moving it and all the difficulty of that, let's just put the electrical box right here. No problem, right? <laughs> Let me tell you about the problem with water and electricity. I know a few things about that in the last few days. We skirt the boundaries of God's wisdom and look for shortcuts, but be wary of the dark side because Darth Vader looks so impressive, so powerful on the outside, but behind the mask, he's a mess. Stage two on that path is imperilment. Stage three in the journey of that path is what was called submission. Again, the old Jedi master talks about uh, on the path to the dark side. Once they've uh, accepted that path, it changes everything. All of a sudden, they don't even give justifications for the way they act anymore. They just give in like Anakin when he receives that dark uh, power, that dark side. He becomes enslaved to the whims of Emperor Palpatine, his servant. And you see the same kind of thing in Genesis 3, verse 7, with Adam and Eve. It says, And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? See, Adam and Eve, they don't even give reasons to justify their actions anymore. They, they, they don't trust God. They know better. They hide from God. They hide from each other. They have aligned their lives with the lie of the serpent. They are experiencing what James will say in the New Testament to the church, that each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Walter Brueggemann says it this way, they wanted knowledge rather than trust, and now they have it. They now know more than they could have wanted to know, and there's no place to run. Their knowledge outpaces their trust. And then the challenge, and what I think is the saddest verse in the whole Bible, God whispers in the garden, where are you? Where are you? 
It's not a location question, as if omniscient God can't find Adam because he's such a great hider. It's an application question. Where are you? Fleming Rutledge reflects on this passage and puts it this way. She says, to be in sin, biblically speaking, means something very much more consequential than wrongdoing. It means being catastrophically separated from the eternal love of God. Where are you? It means to be on the other side of an impassable barrier of exclusion from God's heavenly banquet. Where are you? It means to be helplessly trapped inside one's own worst self, miserably aware of the chasm between the way we are and the way God intends us to be. It means the the continuation of the reign of greed and cruelty and rapacity and violence throughout the world. It means, in my language, joining the dark side. Where are you? Let me just ask you that question this morning, as if from the very words of God, where are you right now? Are you treading the path to the dark side? Are you believing lies about yourself, about God, about this world? Are you rationalizing? Are you giving up on a life of faith and letting lies carry more weight than God's word? Where are you? Who are you submitted to, this king or the usurper? There's one final stage on the journey to the dark side. It's called atonement. Again, in the old writings, the Jedi Master Shim believed that a Jedi who had chosen the dark side may atone for their choices through a selfless act of heroism without using the dark force. And that's what you see even at the end of Anakin's life when, um, as Darth Vader, he saves his son Luke Skywalker from Emperor Palpatine. The question is, can Adam and Eve, captured in the dark side of sin in this story, can they perform selfless acts of heroism to save themselves? Will they repent? Will they rejoin God in his mission in the world? Nope. Look at verse 9. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Adam offers the pitiful answer, I was afraid. It doesn't answer God's question at all. Where are you? But he says, I was afraid. It's the same sort of pitiful answer you'll hear from lying Abraham in Genesis 20 or from lying Isaac in Genesis 26 and by all who cannot trust in the goodness of God and who have submitted themselves to the power of sin instead of the power of our Savior. Every Jedi knows fear is the path to the dark side. And so God says, verse 11, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from that tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, so much for selfless acts of heroism. Did you hear it? Every description that they offer is about I, 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 I heard. I was afraid. I was naked. I hid. The preoccupation with this good gardener, God, has taken, been taken over by a preoccupation with I. Except when it comes to blame. And then it was you. Did you hear Adam? The woman, he says. She's to blame. And then even indirectly, he says, the woman you put here with me. It's the woman's fault. But, but if not her, then, then you, God, it's your fault. And the woman says, the serpent, the serpent. 
In the dark side of their sin, there are no selfless acts of heroism. There are only selfish acts of finger pointing. And the one flesh couple splits into two. What if? What if they had come clean? What if they had repented? What if they had come before God and said, God, we are sorry? We'll never know. We'll never know. The image of God has been reimagined in sin. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of looking through a window. When you look through a window in the daytime, you're able to see images outside of the window, obviously. You see trees and cars or neighbors walking by. And in a certain light, you can even see your own reflection in the window, but you see your reflection in light of the external image. The two images kind of bleed together in the daylight, and so you see a bit of yourself, but also the world around you. At nighttime, when it's dark, when you look through a window, what you see is a wall of black, but when you turn the lights on in your own place or your own room, what you see in the window is your own reflection, and that's it. And I wonder for Adam and Eve in this moment, if they're not looking through a window, that for a time they were able to see through the window of creation. They saw God and they saw his goodness and they saw his gifts and all the trees and all the creation, all of those things. And they saw themselves too. They saw their identities, but it was in relationship to God, reflecting God to the creation and to the world around them. But then with a bite, darkness fell. And when they're looking through that window, instead of seeing God, instead of what Paul calls seeing through a glass darkly, what they see is their own reflection. And all the reflection that they see is what dominates their thinking. For millennia, I think that's what we human beings have struggled with. We've been fixated on our own image. We've tried to figure out things on our own. We know better. And so we've done what feels good. We've determined what freedom is. We've defined ourselves by our own categories of race or religion or sexuality or gender or politics or economics. We know better. We see through the window clearly. We like the reflection we see. But we've lost God on the other side of the glass. We've journeyed to the dark side. And there are no selfless acts of heroism that we can muster that, can, that we can use to save ourselves. Instead of obeying God, we humans chose our own tree. Instead of repenting, we humans blame. Instead of reflecting God, we have now been enslaved by a foreign power called sin. And as C.S. Lewis pointed out, he said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Is there any hope for us? Any atonement for us? We've all walked to the dark side. We've all walked through these four stages in this journey. Today, we wear Darth Vader's mask to conceal our own brokenness, our own shame, our own sin. We, we sin, we hide, we blame. Is that it? The first humans distanced from God at a tree, but God in his mercy delivered humans at a tree. Jesus hung on a tree on a cross taking upon himself our sin, our shame, our iniquities, so that all who trust in him will find a path from the dark side into atonement, will find again life and new life. 
Paul would describe God to the Colossian Christians this way in Colossians 1. He says, uh, God is the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, from the dark side, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God can bring us back from the dark side of sin and recreate childlike beauty in us if we accept his selfless act of heroism for us, his death on the cross. Will you embrace this Christ? Will you trust him? Will you accept his gift on your behalf? Will you follow him? Because without him, we face an eternity on the dark side. Make today the day you find atonement from this story a long time ago in a garden far, far away. Make today the day that you take off the mask and you find your father. Make it today. Would you pray with me? We have sinned, Father. There is no other way of saying it. We have spoiled your graciousness and your goodness to us. We have chosen on our own, and we have been enslaved by sin. But thanks be to God that in Jesus we have redemption. Thanks be to you, God, that we have in Jesus one who cares so deeply about us that you will die on our behalf so that we can find life again. We don't deserve it. Strip us of our masks, Father. Help us to see truth. Help us to experience your grace and to share that with others. In Jesus' name, amen.